Tag Team and Friends. Of course, I go by the name of the kid, famous. You and now tuned in to the Tim and Friends show. Hello, education, entertainment, coast to coast. Ball it up, call it entertainment. Let's get this started. Uncle Tim, let's start this show in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. I don't know that you get this anywhere else but in sports, where the margins are so thin, the joy of victory and the agony of defeat. Let's first go back. It was November 17th. 2017, I sat in this very sweet seat or suite after Sweden, Italy, a nil-nil final in Milan that forced the Azzurri to miss their first World Cup since 1958. And while I expressed my concern for childhood friends like Fausto Di Carlo, Alberto Petiti, Enzo Lacata, Pietro Aprile, Vito Tomasico, and of course my good friend Dino Nuno, who you all know. Yes, I went to Catholic school. How would you ever know? I express my concern for my childhood friends, but my co-host, the dude that used to sit there, one of my favorite rants of all time. Where is Insigne? Where are the goals? Fire everybody. Gigi Buffon was crying post-game. And yet here we are four years, less than four years later, European Cup champions playing a beautiful game that produced 13 goals on the way to the title. It is amazing, the turnaround, 34 straight unbeaten for Italy, a national record less than four years after a national disgrace or disgrazia, and a wonderful lesson for England. I'm not going to tell England fans not to be upset. Hell no. That's as useless as the G in lasagna. But my God, sure it's not coming home, but after Luke Shaw scored faster than you can say Gianluigi Donnarumma, it probably felt like it finally was. What's so amazing, England's first final in 55 years, trusting and developing the kids under the immense pressure of playing at home, they made their first final in over five decades with the second youngest team in the tournament, and somehow this has become a disappointment. Two of the best footballing nations in the world. The only thing to choose between the two was the cruel coin flip that penalties can be. And some have gone from elation to more pissed than a dragon trying to blow out a candle. It's hard to do. You fire and stuff. Anyways, it's amazing how much baggage or how much we put our baggage on these athletes. England, on these kids. Have you not learned from the past? This group isn't Chris Waddle or David Beckham or Gary Lineker or anyone else you made eat the poop sandwich after missing a penalty. Italy is proof of how quickly it can turn. It was heartbreak in a final. Or was it the kind of fire that could forge steel for years to come? Let's be honest. England just might be the best young team in the tournament. And this may have just been the best kind of experience that they could possibly have moving forward to a World Cup in about a year. That is, if you let it be that. Tim McCall, Tim and Friends, Jesse Rubinoff standing by with First Things First. And Jesse, it's amazing how many teams that could apply mm-hmm. to. The Jays, the Oilers, big deal today for the Oilers as they get older. <clears throat> Canada soccer, basketball, maybe even the Leafs, like... The hardest thing to do for a fan is have patience, but it's crazy how quickly it can turn in sports. 
I think if you're an English supporter, obviously there's going to be a ton of heartbreak based on the way yesterday went down. But how can you not look at this young squad and say, okay, we're back. We're on the up and up. I and thought wait a little while. I thought still. that was going to be what the conclusion was, was, okay, we're back and we are legit. Like, it's not as if you've made final after final after. It was the first final since the last championship in 1966. Yeah. Like, to me, it's it's almost crazy, but I get it. I understand it because if you're a fan, you want it now. Not later. Now. Yeah. English supporters are a, a special breed. But if you look at most teams, if you get that close to winning a championship, you're going to feel the disappointment regardless of how well you think your team played or how well you think you're set up for the future. Right. There is still that sort of, of grieving period that you need before you can eventually say, okay, we're on to the Only next Turkey step was younger than us in this uh, tournament. Yeah. And if you look at the main components of this team, all of them will be there in Qatar in 2022. Yeah. Which is now next year because we pushed Euro 2020 back. <laughs> Like Euro it's just, 2020 in 2021. It's just like amazing. Say. Like, I know that there are people who are like, well, it might be another 55 years. No, mm -hmm. that's not how you look at this. You look at it like we had the second youngest team in the tournament and we made the final playing really good football, right? Sports is ridiculous. Like, they just think about how fickle that was. It goes to penalties. You said it was a coin flip. It's exactly what it was. I mean, yeah, sure. Italy was as probably a, the better as team a key, through nine. As minutes. a keeper, it hurt me to say it was yeah. a coin flip. Yeah. How would you like to be 6'4", standing on that net like Donnarumma? There's no pressure on goalies. There's nowhere to score. The guy's a monster. There's a lot of places <laughs> to score. Okay, fine. It's a soccer net. Just depending on the angle, I mean, dude is big. It's he great for big. goalies. Penalty shots are great for goalies because there's no pressure. Yeah. If you save a couple, you are a hero. And they looked good yesterday. The keepers did in those yeah, penalties. Uh, all right. We mentioned the Oilers trade. Edmonton has picked up Duncan Keith from the Hawks for Caleb Jones and a third-round pick. Uh, I'm still scratching my head on this one. And as you can tell, I've been scratching for a while here because <laughs> there's nothing left. Uh, we'll do it in first things first. Chris Johnson coming up a little later on in the show. Also in hockey, the Sens made some news. Pierre Maguire has been hired as their brand spanking new senior VP of player development as he crosses over into the team side of things. He's fair game now that he's on the team side of things, so he's coming on the show, as is Tim Kirchin of ESPN from the All-Star break in Denver. And we'll ask him what the Jays need to do to make a run in the second half, as well as his favorite all-star moments as we are walking down that road to the home run derby a little later today. Also popping by Dave McMenamin from Milwaukee as we have a series in the final after the Bucks win game three last night. And of course, a follow on the Euros with our friends James Sharman, Craig Forrest coming up in about 15 minutes time. So much going on. Let's fire up the old hot button topics of the day. It's Jesse Rubinoff. It's First Things First. First things first. first. Let's go on a Monday. First things first to by start the, the week. Here by we the go. way, the two English producers right now are pissed. Yeah, they're at so me. mad at us. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry. I mean, they'll, they'll eventually get over it, but yeah, we feel we sympathize it's with coming them. Coming home. We sympathize with them today. That was a tough Eventually, way to go. it yeah. will come home. It will. Eventually. eventually. Yeah. yeah. It might take it, you know, just more than just coming 55 years, right but now. yeah, it's yeah, going no, I got it, yeah. Uh, we'll begin today's show. You talked about it with a deal between the Oilers 
and the Chicago Blackhawks. After some rumors popped up last week, defenseman Duncan Keith heading to the Oilers in exchange for defenseman Caleb Jones and a conditional third round draft pick. They said you were scratching your head about this one. Timmy, uh, what is your opinion on this deal for the Oilers? If it was just acquiring Duncan Keith, I would say, why not give it a shot? Um, why not bring in a guy who's won three cups and mm-hmm. two Norris trophies and see if you can use him? But you gave up Caleb Jones. And I know that there are people out there saying, well, they probably would have lost him to Seattle in the expansion draft, but that just means that another person is taking Caleb Jones' place. That's like, right. you gave up Jones, you gave up a third round pick, and there was absolutely no salary retention on Duncan Keith, who's making five and a half million dollars. Like, the analytics world hates what Duncan Keith has become over the last little while. I understand that it becomes more than just analytics when you're trying to develop a good young team. But even then, even then, I don't see how this works out super well for Edmonton unless he regains some sort of form. And the possibility is there. You see what happened with Tyson Berry Mm -hmm. and how... Everyone kind of knew what Tyson Berry was doing when he joined the Oilers. It was, hey, go quarterback, a great power play with two studs. And maybe Duncan Keith works in there better than he worked, but it's not as if he didn't have anything in Chicago, no. right? Like, yeah, I mean, there are others that replaced him, but they have some pretty skilled guys last time I checked in Chicago. There's just a bunch of things I would have thought that they would have been able, especially throwing in a third-round pick to get some sort of salary retention to make this a little bit more palpable or a little bit more easier to digest for Oilers fans, but they're pissed right now. Like, we put it out there, Duncan Keith, Oilers fans, do you like the move? Like, it's a resounding no. Mm -hmm. I am stunned that I think coming into this trade, when there were rumors of this trade popping up, everything was about the salary retention. It was if... The Blackhawks can retain maybe half of the salary. Then you're getting Duncan Keith. You mentioned it, a guy with tons of experience. He's won three cups. He's won a Conn Smythe. Help but your they kids grow. But they didn't retain any salary. So now you are paying Duncan Keith basically top-line D-pair money. Yeah. And, he, yeah, sure, he plays 23 minutes a night. But if you're not getting quality 23 minutes a night or even sliding him on the second pair there as a left-handed defenseman behind Darnell Nurse... That looks good in maybe 2014 or 15. In 2021 and 2022, you're paying a soon-to-be 38-year-old over $5 million. And you can say all you want about defensemen or a premium, this and that, but you also just gave away a defenseman. And what you're getting back is a declining asset. The one thing about the defenseman that they just gave away is that a lot of people feel like the hot prospect, Caleb Jones, was what they gave away here. The more interest and listen, I don't he's 24 now. Like you've got to eventually you've got to be past the hot prospect stage. You've got to start playing NHL games and he was at times, a lot of times, a healthy scratch for this Edmonton team that wasn't exactly deep on defense. They gave him a bunch of opportunities to progress, and I don't think they saw it. What makes this even more interesting to me is the Chicago Blackhawks' pursuit of Seth Jones, Mm -hmm. his brother, and does this sweeten the pot, perhaps, for Seth Jones' long-term signing 
in Chicago after a deal is done. I don't know. Blackhawks play a little there. chess there. Maybe yeah. a little forward, thinking in 4D. Yeah, and they, like, they lose salary. They lose a guy that wasn't what he used to be and get a third-round pick yeah. and help sweeten the pot for signing Seth Jones or getting Seth Jones and signing Seth Jones. Like, I feel like the Blackhawks won this deal. Yes, because it, 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 it limits what the Oilers can do with the rest yeah. of the salary cap room. But don't have. act That's, like... Don't act like they're going out there and signing the top free agents. No, they're not. Without overpaying. No, they won't. But uh, we'll have Chris Johnson on the show coming up. Much more to discuss when it comes to the Duncan Keith deal. However, more hockey news today. After 25 years away from the team, Pierre Maguire has reunited with the Ottawa Senators after the team announced this morning that Maguire has been hired as the team's new senior vice president of player development, a role that will see him work hand-in-hand with general manager Pierre Dorian. So, Timmy, what will Pierre Maguire bring to the Sens? Uh, I think we're going to see some uh, some big body presence in the high traffic areas. We'll see a lot of active sticks from a Pierre Maguire influenced team. We'll see uh, big active sticks trying to take away time and space, of course, and some sheer larceny from the goalies. I think with DJ Smith already there, there will be some monsters of the game that will be valued. And don't don't forget, we may see some double D. De- forget forget the double Dion's. We may see how the double Pierres work together. In fact, we'll ask him a little later on as McGuire is going to show, join the show a little later. I don't know if I got every Pierre McGuire cliche in there, but I tried to jam as many as I possibly could into the open space. Hopefully he was watching and he can bring some <laughs> on more when you, uh, when you interview him a little bit later. The McGuireisms. Yeah, so good. I always thought, like as a kid, like, especially the color commentators, these guys know so much. Why aren't they in front offices all the time? And then you grow up and you're like, well, some of them have been. Like, I didn't know Pierre Maguire had been a scout and assistant coach and a head coach of the assistant Hartford GM, Whalers. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that. And a lot of, I mean, that's what happens now. You grab guys that have been in the front offices and co- former coaches, former players, they become color commentators. So it'll uh, be interesting to talk to Pierre yeah, Maguire. Yeah, a long sure. time outside of those circles. Yeah. It'll be interesting how he integrates. And apparently he will report to Pierre Dorian. Yep. That's what Pierre Dorian told us earlier today. So we'll walk through that Double with Pierre, Pierre Maguire a little later on. Love it. Uh, Novak Djokovic has further staked his claim as the men's tennis goat after grabbing his 20th Grand Slam title yesterday at Wimbledon, matching Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. Djokovic beating Matteo Berrettini in four sets to capture his third Grand Slam title of 2021. Timmy, will he be the greatest of all time by the time he retires, or maybe is he already the greatest of all time? I think he will be. I think you could probably make the argument that he already is. In fact, uh, Ultimate Tennis Statistics now suggests that he is the GOAT of the open era. I mean, you can't help but think that he will add to these numbers all three of the greatest of all time. It's amazing to think they're all from the same generation and Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic all have 20. But what interests me even more than the GOAT debate right now is his ability to put it to sleep this year. Mm -hmm. How does he put it to sleep this year? Well, he's the first since Rod Laver when basically tennis was an amateur sport. It was kind of pro, but he's the first since Laver since 66 to win the first three slams in a calendar year. And not only can he win the Grand Slam season and be the first in what is this new world of tennis Mm -hmm. to capture a Grand Slam, but he could do the Golden Slam 
And only Steffi Graf has ever done that. You add the Golden Grand Slam, you add the gold medal at the Olympics, and this would be the greatest season of all time, bar none on the men's side of things, and he is undoubtedly the GOAT moving forward if you're able to pull off not only the Grand Slam, but the Golden Grand Slam, which he still can do if he goes to the Olympics. Somehow it feels like, and I, I could be wrong about this, but somehow it feels like Djokovic is a little underappreciated when it comes to Federer yeah. and Nadal. And do you think it's because over the course of his career, he, he definitely is more outspoken than Federer and Nadal, and he's had multiple sort of PR hiccups along the way. So maybe not as few fans as Federer and Nadal. So do you think that plays a part into it when... You know, you're looking at the three of them, and, and maybe he doesn't get the, the credit he necessarily deserves. Yeah. Okay. Without a doubt. Unless you talk to a Serbian. <laughs> yeah. Then shut your mouth. And if you're not talking to a Serbian, there are some D-bag qualities that he will exhibit every once in a while. He'll also exhibit some really funny qualities and some real endearing qualities. But without a doubt, the only reason why people still cling to Federer is because they like him so much. And listen, he's got a winning record against Federer. He's got a winning record against Nadal. He just beat Nadal on clay. Like, everything points to him. But I will say this. The way it's changed, he has geared towards slams. That's, he doesn't hide it. He doesn't shy away from it. That's what he's always done. And there are a few of the old-school tennis crowd that say that rips some people off. It rips some fans off, knowing full well what you're going for is the greatest of all time. And that title that he is very close to grabbing, which is most Grand Slams all time. Going to be an overwhelming favorite at the U.S. Open. Overwhelming favorite. Uh, more tennis news today. Bianca Andreescu is pulling out of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. A post on Instagram. She wrote to all my amazing fans, I would like to inform you that I've made the very, very difficult decision to not play in the Tokyo Olympics later this month. I've been dreaming of representing Canada at the Olympics since I was a little girl, but with all the challenges we're facing as it relates to the pandemic, I know that deep in my heart, this is the right decision to make for myself. I look forward to representing Canada in future Fed Cup ties and competing at the 2024 Olympics in Paris. So obviously, given the circumstances, it's hard to criticize any person or athlete that makes the decision not to play in the yeah, Olympics. There's but just so much going around yeah. Bianca right now that it's hard to sort through uh, changing of coaches, totally. figuring out um, how healthy she is, and those flashes of brilliance that we saw. We all, as Canadians at least, um, watch and say, okay, when when is she going to get back to that level? And the weight is becoming a little bit more concerning uh, each and every time we hear pieces of news like this. Mm -hmm. But hopefully... Even though this is her pulling out of the Olympics, it means that she'll get closer to being healthy so that she can compete at levels like we have seen in the past. Kind of like Chapo, who decided to skip the French Open right. due to injury, came, comes back to Wimbledon Come back and performs stronger. very, very well. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's go to basketball. Because we have a series, Timmy. We do. We have a series. After a couple losses on the road, the Bucks returned home and got another strong performance from Giannis and Tedakupo, who went off. Again, for 41 points as Milwaukee coasted to a 120-100 victory. Milwaukee getting some secondary scoring in this one. Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton combining for 39 points. So who's more important to Milwaukee's success? Giannis 
or Middleton and Holiday? There's no doubt that superstars in the NBA need help, but I will say this. Uh, that was maybe the most important game of Giannis's career, and he was remarkably mm. impressive in what was the most important game of his career. And we do this thing in basketball, and I think it came with LeBron James, where your greatness is only defined by how many titles you get. And it was because so many people were comparing LeBron James to Michael Jordan. That's the only way that you do it. Michael Jordan had six. You had to get LeBron James to this. But Giannis does so many things very, very well. And I think you underrate his greatness because he doesn't do a few things like, say, LeBron does. But that performance last night was among the best that I have seen. I mean, he, he took over. And he did it when they needed it the absolute most. And that's what you want. Special players make special plays in special days. Giannis did that in game three. Can he continue to do it? It'll depend on the help. Just like it did with the Raptors around Kawhi Leonard. Just like it does with LeBron James when he gets help from Kyrie Irving or whoever he gets help from. Like, the Warriors won because they had peace is, mm -hmm. plural. And... It's amazing how much we'll put on a guy like that's back, but he definitely responded. It's the first time in the series where the Suns have been a little bit exposed. DeAndre Ayton was in foul trouble throughout much of the night. He Why? started out really hot. So you can't guard Giannis. Giannis in the post. Yeah. You can't guard him in the post right now. And then when Ayton's out of the game, it's like a men amongst boys. Yeah, and Devin Giannis. Booker had a game like young superstars will have in the game, but mm -hmm. you can't have in the NBA Finals or you lose. And that's what happened. And that's what separates the greatest yeah. from the really, really, really good. And Booker's trying to get there. Suns in four is done. Done. Not a chance. Uh, okay, staying with basketball, where Canada's U19 team put a, a bow on their FIBA World Cup, taking the third-place match over Serbia, 101-92. to Canada had lost their semifinal match to USA on Saturday before bouncing back with their second top-three finish in their last three World Cups. An encouraging sign of yeah, things this, to come, too. This is important just to note. Like, this is the World Juniors of basketball, and Canada's semifinal loss to the United States was mm -hmm. a six-point loss. Like, it was a hard-fought, toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow loss. So if you're looking at the disappointment of not making the Olympics, and then you look at this team that was rated second in the world going in and only lost to the top-ranked team in the world in the United States of America, that, to me, shows the necessary steps that it's not just some golden generation moving through. There are legit stars. Benedict Matherin, who is at Arizona. Caleb Houston, who's at Michigan. Uh, Zach Eady, he, he was East. in that all-tournament team. Yeah. Seven foot three. And listen, Elijah Fisher, that uncommitted there, that's because he's not going to university until 2023. Um, he, there's just a bunch of guys on this team that are proving that it's not just some golden generation, that there is actually a pipeline of basketball talent in this country. Yeah. And a bronze medal in the World Cup is evidence of that. I think you're going to agree with me based on what you just said, but I would make the argument that the U19 team and how they perform is a better barometer for the state of basketball in this country than the men's national team because it proves that you have talent coming along the way. And it's not just a one-off with guys that are now playing on the national team, right? Yeah. You agree? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the point that I was trying to make yeah. there was that the pipeline is full. The, 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 the cupboard, this isn't just a one. This isn't just a golden generation. Perfect.
That's it for me. All right, still to come. As mentioned, Pierre Maguire joins us after being hired from this by the Sens. Dave McMenamin from Milwaukee as the Bucks get back into the series. Plus, Tim Kirchin from Coors Field ahead of the home run derby. Chris Johnson on the Duncan Keith deal. And up next, a heartbreaker for England, but joy for Italy. Plus, Messi gets his trophy with Argentina. James Sharman and Craig Forrest join us next to discuss right here on Tim and Friends. Argentina have done it! Messi has done it! They have won the Copa America! A Messi that is joyful and now is relieved of that pressure. Look out. What a month. What a Copa America. What a moment for Messi in Argentina. This just in. The freaks come out at night. The Greek freak having his way. Atenacupo throws it up. Shot won't go. Gets the rebound. Back up. Banks it in. And a foul. Giannis Atenacupo punishing the Suns. And it's a good old-fashioned NBA playoff blowout. Shohei Otani. He would be taking part in the home run derby. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. 33. The best all-around baseball player in the world. Get ready, Denver. Get ready, home run derby. All looking long, Di Maria got him behind. It's a mistake by the defense. Di Maria, a little chip, and he scores. Angel Di Maria has put Argentina in front in the Copa America final in Brazil. Cannot believe it. Argentina have done it. Messi has done it. They have won the Copa America. Lionel Messi wins his first international trophy with Argentina and cements his status as the best player of all time. We go to penalties at Wembley. You've got to have nerves of steel to take penalties. Substitute Marcus Rashford. This to keep the edge with England. A stutter. Oh, he's missed it. Two deliberation it swung back Italy's way he's a very cool customer oh but not cool enough and Italy are almost there Saka still has to score pressure on a 19 year old and now Italy win a European champions for only the second time a long wait is over for the Azzurri tears of delight tears of despair it's what football does to you My first two guests of the show are two of the three main combatants on the Footy Prime podcast and old school friends of the show here to discuss Messi's first trophy, Italy's first European championship since 1968, England's first final in 55 years, the Gold Cup, and more, if that's even possible, James Sharman and former Canadian international Craig Forrest. Welcome back, boys. Hey, Tim. Oh, always great. Yeah. <laughs> are you all right, Sharman? You okay, Sharman? Yeah. I'm need- okay. I got- I've been well. I haven't been down this road, you know, before. Given that they got to a final this time, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> so there's that. There's progress, but uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great Sunday, Tim. No. Okay. Is it is it a deeper dagger, Charms? A little deeper? No, you know, I'd much rather crash out in the final on penalties <laughs> than than you know the usual last sixteen capitulation. So sure, <laughs> sure, it's painful, but hey, listen, this is a young team that showed some some really good signs and. It's a tough way to lose, but that's how you do it. And, and, and they lost to, without question, the best team in the Euro this year. I mean, Italy were fantastic throughout the tournament and then especially after about the 20-minute stage of the final. Okay, so let me, let me ask you, Craig. If I had given English fans a final against probably the best team in the tournament where you would saw off to penalties, wouldn't 
99% of them have taken that? Yes, absolutely. They would. I mean, if you're going to say in Qatar, I think it could take a penalty shootout to win or lose a, the World Cup right now. Absolutely, it would. It's just the result that hurts so much. And, you know, let's face it, Italy have been there before as well, 1994. You know, and these memories stick with players and, and teams and the history uh, starts to stick with people too. I, I, you know, just when England got over the hoodoo of the penalties and they, they do this. So the next shootout that England have, you can imagine the pressure on them. And uh, some of these youngsters that took the last three could be part of that again uh do they step up next time you know it's a it's a, it's an incredibly difficult high pressure situation that is a lot of fun to win and torturous to lose Sharman, did you like listen garrett southgate went with the kids the entire way and showed a lot of faith in them did you like those youngest kids near the end of that penalty taking line you know, Gareth Southgate, he sprinkled gold dust all over this team from, from day one. Everything he touched worked. He, he was questioned throughout this tournament, and he was proven right until, I think, the end of that final. And, and to take off some of the veterans, uh, to bring on Rashford and Sancho specifically for penalties, I, I get what he was saying post-match, how they were in practice the, the, the most informed spot kick takers, but, but you can't duplicate the pressure they felt. So I know it's a young team, but... To see Jordan Henderson taken off, you know, who I know he missed a penalty in the, in the last exhibition match, but generally speaking, he's pretty good from the spot. Um, and then to put Bakayo Saka, who's just to 19, he's 19 years old, uh, in that spot. And I think in year come, Southgate, who knows all about, you know, messing on the bigger stage back in, of course, year 96, yeah. I think he might say that was maybe not the right choice. Maybe a more experienced head would have been better, but I give. Saka, Rashford, Sancho, credit for stepping up, saying, give me the ball. I'll take a penalty. Good for them. Real courage, but it didn't work out. And we see, they say, I think part of that situation, sorry to interrupt, no uh, guys, is that um, Southgate's also got two players that did well in practice, were confident to do so, and then they have fresh legs. They're brought on as late substitutes, uh, which is a much better situation with a fresh mind uh, taking penalties. Although, Youth does become a, a, a massive factor, I think. As much as these guys can say, I want to take it, when they when you get up to that penalty spot and they, you have to perform against a monstrous goalkeeper, I have to add. I mean, when he's standing in there, he's a massive goalkeeper, and that's a tough situation for those youngsters to be in. So there might be a little bit of criticism there, but I got to say, uh, Southgate, you know, well, this goes a long way in the future in that dressing room when he has that belief uh, for them and says, you know what, I'll do the same next time if you want to step up. Grealish, apparently they were saying he didn't want to take one. That's not true. He did want to take one. He went to social media uh, today to uh, clear that up, that he actually said he would take one. And I, you know, quite honestly, I would have had him take one. So, and listen, uh, I'm not going to give any credence to the idiots online who were talking about other things besides experience and quality. But, Craig, you are, like, listen, I've watched enough soccer to know that you, you were one of the greatest keepers that I have ever seen against the penalty shot. How much of it is the mind game? And when you see fresh legs come into a game where you know they're being subbed in for penalty taking, it is that do you think you have an advantage is it less of it like do you think they have the advantage what's the mindset when you see fresh legs come in 
Well, you're just thinking about the, what's going to happen in that in the few moments ahead of you, uh, and so you're not really concentrating on anything. But you don't even know who your own penalty takers are taken yeah. or, or picked. Um, you will have information from your goalkeeper coach and your assistants on the players that they have. Some of these players don't have a large sample size, and then when you throw that into the mix plus the pressure, you basically are uh, one against one in a new situation. Um, but some of the other ones, like uh, Harry Kane, obviously, you're going to get quite a sample size on him, Rashford, uh, and others. But uh, again, when they have a, a pressure situation like that, and they say go, you know, 80% one way, you still got to think they know that you know that. So, you know, they can always change their mind. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, you just make it as hard as you can. And when you're a goalkeeper the size of Donald Rama, the, the goal, Italian goalkeeper, and he's standing in there and he's got his arms wide and the guy's a monster, that's, that's, that gives an advantage to the Italians, I thought. All right, so here's what we do in modern-day sport. Uh, something happens, and you immediately knee-jerk towards uh, the immediate reaction. And I heard on our preamble, Lionel Messi has now cemented his position as the greatest of all time. I won't stand up here and call him a fraud. But where are we on this, Charmin? I, I sat beside the guy who went viral for calling Messi a fraud because he didn't have an international trophy. He's now not the greatest of all time simply because he's now got that international trophy. Is he? Hey, listen, I, I lost what little respect I had for Sid to begin with <laughs> when he said that fraud comment. Um, listen, this is enormous for, for Messi's legacy in Argentina and for that, that national team. Um, it's not a World Cup. It's a Copa, which are so difficult to win, even for, you know, Argentina, having won it for so many years. But for him to now have that, that silverware for his international side can really put a lot of naysayers, you know, back in that drawer, tucked away. Now, is he the greatest of all time? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, he, he's up there with the three or four best of all time. But all those people that use the argument that Ronaldo had a Euro and what's Messi done for his country? Well... He's won a Copa. He's got his team to a World Cup final as well. It's pretty good, isn't it? And he might win a World Cup next year. You never know. So um, it just makes the conversation, I think, even more murky, even tougher to say. But why can't we just enjoy all these guys? You know, well, because we have to name a goat. goat. What are we talking about here? Wimbledon. There, there is. We need that. That is 2021. We need these fights. We need these arguments. We need hey, someone to say. It's not dead yet. Fraud. It's not dead yet. We got a long way to go. Yeah. You know, Messi and Ronaldo. They're getting old, but they're still performing. And I think the two of them are pushing each other. You know, but to win international trophies just to be the best ever is the difficult one because there could be players in the future or players in the past like George Best playing for Northern Ireland he's never going to win a Euro or a World Cup with a, a squad from Northern Ireland more than likely so it's a difficult one but it's nice that you have Argentina and Portugal two really strong international teams with two of the best players on the planet right now and two of the very best that have ever played of course all right well I got you here maybe Craig. they'll meet maybe they'll meet next year in Qatar that Maybe would, those two teams will meet. That and would be, be a dream matchup because it would help people settle and then you would lose all the excuses about left, right, and center. And by the way, where was Ronaldo when they won that European championship? Coaching on the sidelines. Yeah, he was, uh, but he got the cut. Never mind. All right, Forrest, <laughs> uh, I, I can't let you go without talking about the little gold cup. You won one with Canada uh, back in the day, and Canada starts with Martinique, a 4-1 victory. Uh, what do you make of this year's gold cup squad, and how do you like to start? 
Uh, I like to start. They did well. They had a little bit of uh, difficulty early on, conceding first. Then after that, they they performed really well, and it was very comfortable against the side you would think would be the case. But you know what? You never know against uh, Martinique. They're one of those sides that can be difficult and testing, and they certainly were enough for them. But you've got to remember, I think only 12 of the 23-man squad that were with the World Cup squad are here. Uh, the Fortunate thing is Alfonso Davies picks up an ankle injury and is sent back to Germany. Hopefully that's not too bad, but it shows his desire to keep playing for Canada and also it, how important it is for Canada to perform well at the Gold Cup. But John Herdman has big things in front of him too, so he's got to think of, you know, who can he see, who can he try, try new things at the Gold Cup, but still wanting to win, as well as preparing himself down the road for what's really important for Canada, and that's going to be World Cup qualifying. Uh, the greatest keeper I've ever seen against penalty shots, Craig Forrest, and James Sharman. I played with him in a few charity matches. I'll just say a great analyst. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> I appreciate that. Anytime. Be well, fellas. Appreciate it. Cheers. There is James Sharman and Craig Forrest, and I'm glad I didn't have to give Sharman a virtual hug for England. He seemed like he was in a pretty good spot there. Yeah, he did. Surprising. Giannis went off in game three again of the NBA Finals. He dragged his bucks back into this contest against the Suns. Can he get the support that he needs to pull off the comeback? We will discuss with ESPN's Dave McMenamin. We go basketball next right here on Tim and Friends. The sports craze city has waited 47 years since it last hosted an NBA Finals game. Tucker grabs it. Back to Antetokounmpo. And the Bucks regain the lead. Booker against Holiday. Inside. Block from behind. Holiday behind the back. Middleton back to Holiday. Inside. Portis for the slam. And the Bucks go up 10. Antetokounmpo throws it up. Shot won't go. Gets the rebound. Back up. Banks it in. Punishing the Suns here in the third. First finals game at home here in Milwaukee in 47 years. And it's a good old-fashioned NBA playoff blowout. And because of it, we got a series. The Bucks even uh, are get it to 2-1 and perhaps the most important and impressive game in Yanni's career. Here to discuss our old friend, Dave McMenamin of ESPN. Welcome back to the show, Dave. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm still uh, amazed by what I saw in game three. As you mentioned, perhaps the most important game of Giannis's career combined with the most impressive. So where, where does that, I mean, listen, I, I don't want to do the, where does that rank in all time, but where does that rank for him? Cause to me, it is probably the most impressive performance that I've seen. And it was because every time I talk about Giannis, I say, okay, well, what does Drew Holiday do? And before that it was, what does Eric Bledsoe do to help him? Or what does Chris Middleton do to help him? And it's not as if they were bad, but they also weren't great. Like that was uh, a seemingly virtuoso performance from Yanni. It, it truly was. Now, in the third quarter, Drew Holiday, let's give him his flowers. Yep. He hit every shot they needed to to stave off that Suns rally. But the reason there was a rally by the Suns was because Giannis was able to snowball them and put them behind the eight ball. And they were battling back all game from that second quarter. And, and the credit goes to him because you expected to have the arena give that initial burst of energy. It was the first finals game in Milwaukee in nearly 50 years. But the Suns push back against that. So the Suns have a lead after the first quarter. And that's when 
the Suns could easily manipulate the game and, and take control the way they did in games one and two, but Giannis wouldn't be denied. He scored 11 of his 42 in the second, and it was all at the basket, at the rim, applying pressure, getting guys in foul trouble, and then, wow, compared to what we saw in Phoenix, making his foul shots. 13 yeah. for 17 is good for, like, any player, let alone a guy like Giannis who has struggled from the line. And because of it, got uh, Aiton into foul trouble, and there's some dominoes there, including uh, some defense. And I I know that we're all wowed by the numbers that Giannis put up, and and they're impressive, but we also have to mention the defense because I felt like they turned the series with an injury against Brooklyn and real defense. Did we see the first kind of real defensive gem from the Bucks in this finals? Absolutely. And again, I point to that second quarter where the Bucks were playing well offensively, taking care of the basketball and shooting around 50%, but they forced five turnovers from the Suns, and that allows them to get out in transition. And again, Giannis with a head of steam, I think there's only two players you can say that that are better in the open court in today's NBA because of their combination of being able to finish and passing, and that's LeBron James and Ben Simmons. Uh, Giannis, especially when he makes his free throws, wow, that's just unstoppable. And Chris Paul said it best after the game. He said, somehow, some way, we got to be able to build a wall to keep him out because every single bucket he had in game three was five feet or closer to the rim. And it was almost like Giannis finally paid attention to the critics. I, I've been critical of him over the years. Why is he shooting these, this three-point shot so often when obviously he can't make it quite yet uh, enough to have it be part of his bag, and we know what he can do at the rim. And it was like, forget it. I'm just going to make sure I put my head down and create contact mm -hmm. and force the ref to call something. And it left Monty Williams uh, you know, crying foul about what happened in the game. But honestly, if you look back and I, I watched a bunch of the replays last night and this morning, there was a lot of contact. It wasn't ticky tack stuff. It was Giannis going to a, a place so close to the basket that the Bucks felt they had to put their body on him or he would have had an open dunk. Uh, he's like me at the Y, and I've said this a bunch of times, where you just hope to hit that open three early so that people have to guard you, and then it opens up other things. Like that's the. Are only... there any other comparisons that you and Giannis <laughs> no. have? I, I, okay. That is yeah. the that is the <laughs> only one. And uh, apparently, we have we both have a lot of Greek friends, but that's a go. story for another day. So Devin Booker, and and listen, the difference between good and great is consistency. The the amount of. Uh, Difficulty on doing it every game I don't think is appreciated by the general NBA fan. He was 3 of 14. He had just 10 points. How does he change that? Yeah, and honestly, coming into the finals, he was enjoying one of the best postseasons in NBA history for a guy playing in his first playoffs. Yeah. I mean, uh, Rick Barry, Dr. J, and then Booker when it comes to the most points scored in an inaugural postseason. But Crazy. You know, he was so flat in, in game three. And some of it was getting to that mid-range area that we know he can make. And he's told us throughout these playoffs that he grew up idolizing Rip Hamilton. It was one of the best mid-range jump shooters of the modern era. Uh, but in some sense, that's settling. Uh, you, you know, you want to be able to keep penetrating, keep probing the defense until you can get as close as possible to the basket. You didn't see him getting all the way to the rim very often. And obviously his shot just wasn't there. And whether that's going to be something he adjusts from or not, I believe he will. During the regular season, when he shot 35% or worse in a game, the following game, 
he averaged around 26 points on 48% shooting. So history would suggest he's going to do whatever he has to do to tinker, get himself right. And because of the, the, the final schedule here, he gets two days uh, until yeah. game four on Wednesday to get his legs underneath him again, come out with some pop. And the Suns have to play like the desperate team in game four, or they're going to go back 2 two. And, you know, if you're going back 2 two, when now the Bucks have won two in a row and Giannis has at least two 40 point games under his belt, if not three, if he does it again in game four, the entire complexion of the series changed uh, to me. Booker is the genuine article. He is a guy destined for greatness. Mm -hmm. And so I think we'll see some consistency from him in game four. So, so they've gone Thursday, Sunday, Wednesday now for games two, three, and four. You've got to think that's helping Giannis get a little more healthy, but what in the actual name of Thunder Dan Marley are they doing here with all of this separation? Yeah, it, it, it's uh, a really interesting consideration because Giannis didn't look totally himself in game one, but he had that incredible chase down block of Mikhail Bridges where you raise your eyes like, oh, okay, I, I guess his knee bent like a bendy straw, but uh, he's going to be good to go in this series. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious to see how the time actually benefits him. I, I, to me, he's a guy who had to overcome the mental hurdle of, wow, I thought for a week or so there that I may not be able to play in the finals. Uh, my season could be over and maybe my next season will be compromised. Uh, so to me, I, I don't think that's uh, the the factor that will really, uh, you know, come together with these extra days. I think it's the Suns just feeling themselves and recognizing that we've had a couple of these situations in the playoffs so far. Uh, you know, we had a letdown game against the Lakers. We had a letdown game against the Clippers. Both of those times that happened, they came back with a W. Uh, and, and to me, the, I've been following them in the Western Conference Finals every game and now the Finals every game. Uh, they, they're a group that has, has a ton of belief and, and, in my estimation, a little bit more talent than the Bucks. And basically, if they win game four, all intents and purposes, this thing's over. If, if they don't, the door opens for the Bucks to be able to maybe have a Miami Heat type of comeback that we saw in 2006 where, you know, they fell down 0-2 uh, against the Mavericks and then they went four in a row. Under the bright lights of Pfizer form, Dave McMenamin joins us. Are they treating you well in Milwaukee? They are. Uh, I, I had a bratwurst at the game last oh, night. Oh, nice. Which a little brat. Enjoyable. Like, yeah, he's got to say it like experience. a brat. You got to like, you got to Americanize. You got to Midwest that. Well, how how are we saying North Bratt. Bay border? Like a brat. brat. Yeah, you got, right. I got myself a brat. <laughs> yeah, so so brat was good. Uh, <laughs> it's 110 degrees in Phoenix. Uh, so just being yeah, in Milwaukee, understood. even with it drizzling today, yeah, I'm all for it. My my uh, my complexion doesn't do all too well with with the heat. Understood, and you don't have to burn the suit. Thanks for doing this, buddy. Appreciate it. <laughs> Yep, thanks, guys. There is Dave McMenamin from Milwaukee. Uh, we take the break. When we come back, the NHL's offseason underway. Oilers' first big move. They trade for Duncan Keith. We will break it all down. Coming up next right here on Tim and Friends. Chris Johnson joins us. Now. 
Sports Talk with Tim McCallum and friends of the show. Thank you very much, Sheepdogs. Back here, hour number two on Tim and Friends. Hour number one for those on Sportsnet who are watching coverage of the Calgary Stampede, the most underrated party in all of Canada. A reminder, catch the full show all week on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590, the fans. So if you want to PVR this show, make sure you head over to Sportsnet 360. Coming up, hour number two of the show, Tim Kirchin from Denver ahead of tonight's home run derby. Plus, new Sens senior VP of player development, Pierre Maguire. More on that shortly. And Chris Johnson also coming up as the NHL's silly season is already underway, even though the Stanley Cup final just ended. And hey, we got a big trade already. That's right. The Oilers have reportedly acquired Duncan Keith from the Blackhawks in exchange for defenseman Caleb Jones, Seth's brother, and a third-round pick. Now, Elliot Friedman reports no salary will be retained in the deal, which is somewhat of a shock given the idea that it seemed as though the Oilers had some leverage. 37-year-old has two years left in his deal, just over $5.5 bucks. Three-time Cup winner, two-time Norris winner, uh, 37 years old. Jones, meanwhile, has played 93 games, with the Oilers over three seasons. Plenty more on this deal coming up with Christopher Johnson in mere moments from now. As mentioned, Senators have hired Pierre Maguire as their senior VP of player development. He will work closely with owner Eugene Melnick and GM Pierre Dorian. He began his career in hockey as a coach, but has since been in broadcasting since 1997. As a broadcaster, McGuire had made it known in the past, not huge on analytics, and he was asked about that in his media availability earlier today. It's not that I hate analytics, but I believe in scouting. Uh, I believe that there has to be people that are boots on the ground, hardcore hockey people that can actually evaluate a player without utilizing numbers, and the player passes the eye test. I still don't know if there's an analytic equation for heart, for character, for hard work, for fearlessness, for determination. Um, so that's part of the formula that hardcore boots on the ground scouting has to be. Uh, I don't hate analytics. I think it's a tool that can be utilized in any kind of evaluation, but I'm a big believer in boots on the ground scouting. So let me uh, let me just boil it down to this. Does Pierre Dorian uh, worry that Pierre McGuire is his replacement? Not at all, not at all. I think, and I think, and I hope to be here for the long term. And I hope that Pierre Maguire is a part of my team for the long term. Uh, you, we all want ambitious people and people that are driven to work with us. And there's no denying the fact that Pierre is ambitious, is driven. And I think that only makes us a better team. It only makes me a better general manager. Again, Pierre Maguire joins us, excuse me, <clears throat> in about 30 minutes' time to discuss his new job. Meanwhile, the Lightning, maybe this is why I was coughing, held their boat parade today, <laughs> celebrating their second straight Stanley Cup, and they had some fun. Players looking like they had, they all had the back to the boat, they had the jet skis out, they also had Kucherov in fine form. Some of them had the t-shirt number one BS, by the way. Uh, we've got that as a button now. Number one bull****. That's right. <laughs> number one bull****. Vasilevsky wearing the Conn Smythe as a hat, uh, <laughs> fake cups, uh, they had a rain delay, delayed some speeches, uh, cut the speeches short, 
players didn't seem to mind. But clip of the day, Nikita <laughs> Kucherov again when he joined WFLA. Unreal. All the people right here, unreal. Love them all. Let's party hard. Our time, baby. Back to back. That's how we do it. What do you think of this team? Unbelievable. No, no can be, nobody can beat us. Back to back years. You know, it's unreal team. Everybody was playing hard. You know, I wish we could keep everybody, but it's business. You know, but you know, as of right now, let's party hard. Let's enjoy it. No, we deserve it. And in Tampa, there's a boat parade. No regular parades. We get on boats. How do you like that? Unreal. I, I think no, nobody, no, nobody else has done it before. It's unreal. Look how many people here, how many people on the ball. It's just unreal. Well, congratulations, guys. I mean, Circuit Chevy, you want to say anything? Thank you. Hey, How did I know that was coming? I can now confirm the parade was not... Number one bull. <laughs> no, it was not. Number one bull. It was, in fact, unbelievable. Uh, we'll have more parade highlights, lowlights, last call coming up. Meantime, between time, there is still a lot going on in the NHL. And while those players partied, uh, their GM, Mr. Brisbois, was not partying. He was hard at work because there's so much going on. And that's why we have employed the services of Chris Johnston to join us now. CJ, what's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm unreal, unreal, Timmy, unreal. <laughs> Unbelievable, unreal. Christopher Johnson joining us here on Tim and Friends. Um, this deal between the Edmonton Oilers and the Chicago Blackhawks, I don't even know, have we gotten the official email yet? Because I haven't seen it while sitting out here. No, not, a, not as of yet have I seen it, but uh, the trade as reported is accurate. It, if... And, okay, so then I believe you because you know what the bleep you're talking about. Are you surprised that there was no salary retention in this deal? Are you surprised that Edmonton gave up as they seemingly had to give up to get Keith at this time in his career? Yeah, I think that that reaction is fair. And certainly in the late stage of the finalizing the trade, they were still going back and forth on the salary retention issue. Obviously, Edmonton would have wanted that, uh, but they also wanted the player and, and – you know, they made the deal without it. You know, what, what someone said to me that works for another team is it looks like the draft pick went the wrong way. You know, meaning usually when you're you're doing something of a salary dump, which yeah. at this stage of Duncan Keith's career, that you know, that there's an element of salary dump to this from, from Chicago's end. It's not just, you know, getting Caleb Jones and a third round pick. They're they're also creating, you know, five million dollars plus in cap space uh in the next two years to make to make further moves beyond this one. You know, usually you would expect the the draft pick to be attached there, but you know, there's some unique circumstances with this trade. Duncan Keith really wanted to be an Oiler. I think the Oilers obviously are excited about being able to add, you know, someone with his resume at this stage in his career and feel that maybe playing him a little lower in the lineup than he's been played in Chicago these last few seasons will, will lead to some better on-ice results for him. And, you know, ultimately, after a, a fair bit of haggling back and forth, you know, this is what they ended up with. And, you know, the Oilers do have cap space, but now they're, they're dedicating a fair amount of it to a 38-year-old defenseman. Well, let's let's talk about that. Like, how does that change what you thought the Oilers' offseason might be? Well, I don't think it changed it too much because, you know, they've also acquired someone that they're going to play in their top four. You know, I would expect them to, to re-up Adam Larson at some point, probably after the expansion draft, because that, you know, gets them around the protection issue or a protection issue they might have when it comes to Seattle. But, you know, assuming that he's signed, you know, you've got Darnell Nurse there, you know, their they're, they're blue line is reasonably set, I would think. And, and so, 
you know, they also had the business with Ryan Nugent Hopkins and signing him to an extension or this offseason. They still have money to play with. You know, they, they're they're looking for wingers. You know, I could see them being a potential landing spot for for someone like Zach Hyman, uh, for example. You know, I think that they're going to be looking for at least one winger that, that can play, you know, with some of their big guys in the top six. And so, you know, they have a unique position this offseason because they were one of the teams uh, with cap space. You know, I think that, that they may also, you know, execute a buyout here while this buyout window is open. And so this is this is a busy off season at Edmonton. You know, busier than than probably most of the teams individually in Canada will be. And they've they've kind of gotten a jump start on things here with a couple moves already. At one point, I know a lot of people looked at Caleb Jones as a as a hot prospect, as a kid that they thought could make the jump. Had he kind of stalled in in those regards? And I know he was a healthy scratch, but a lot of people are kind of saying, well, they gave up a prospect here. But at 24, where's Caleb Jones' development? Well, he's an NHL defenseman. I think, you know, it reminds me a little bit, maybe say of someone like Travis Dermott in Toronto. I know Dermott's played more NHL games, but, you know, he's he's playing on the team and you just wonder, will, will he get into the top four and be a regular there at some point? Or is, are these guys sort of destined to be third pairing guys? I mean, I, either way, I, I still think he counts as a prospect or a promising young defenseman. You know, he probably in some ways has... Um, you know, suffered, you know, being the, the uh, younger brother of, of Seth Jones, yeah. you know, who was a much higher draft pick and obviously has a higher ceiling, has accomplished a lot of the NHL play already. So, you know, he's, he's probably not his brother, if we're being fair. But, you know, I, I still think Chicago's making this deal, feeling good about adding someone that they intend to play in their lineup. And, and you know, I, I do think, you know, for example, if Caleb Jones wasn't traded, you know, there's a good chance he would have been uh, the, the selection that Seattle took. Uh, from the Edmonton Oilers in, in expansion because you know he's he's still got still pretty young and I, I think that there's still there's still a player in there um, you know remains to be seen how high that ceiling goes. Are, are the Blackhawks going to be in play when it comes to his brother Seth Jones? It seems like this could be a nice little foray into those waters. For sure, I, I think that there's some interest in that. You know, it was described to me today as you know don't automatically link the two. It's not it's not a foregone conclusion. I don't think this is the you know, the, the, the first trade ball to drop in the Seth Jones trade is going to happen tomorrow to Chicago and there's an extension. You know, I don't, I don't think it's all been worked out, but, you know, I think that, that it's reasonable to draw that, that line. And even if it isn't directly tied, you know, again, the, the Blackhawks are are high on, on Caleb Jones as, as a prospect and, and, you know, like what they got in this deal. But, you know, I certainly think now, you know, this becomes a destination where, where Seth Jones might go. And, and, you know, the interesting question with Seth, right, is, is he's entering a final year of his deal is he being traded purely as kind of a rental player for one year or is he signing an extension right. somewhere? You know, there's a few teams that it's believed he'd be willing to sign an extension, but I don't think it would be just any team given that he could be an unrestricted free agent a year from now. But, you know, having his brother in the organization, if Chicago wants to make that kind of pitch, I think maybe strengthens, you know, some incentive for him to at least consider signing an extension as part of a trade, which I think would make that trade more probable for Columbus. So, you know, I do think that there's a little bit of smoke there, but, you know, by no means should we conclude that Seth Jones will definitely be a Blackhawk. I think there's certainly other teams still in the mix there. Uh, I printed out a bunch of notes of uh, names that are being thrown out there in all of this uh, this silly season. And the one that jumped out to me the most was Matthew Kachuk in Calgary. If if we go down to Southern Alberta, do you believe that there is any – is there any smoke here? or uh, Is there any fire around this smoke, or is there even smoke here? Uh, maybe a small amount. You know, I think that, you know, you know, it was a really tough season in Calgary. I don't think it's hard to, to get around that fact. They were a team, made some big signings in free agency, entered that North Division 
you know, to show my wisdom and my preseason predictions. I had them winning the North and, and you know, they didn't go on to make the playoffs. And so, you know, that's going to come with some change. You know, they've also talked some extension talk with Johnny Goudreau. I think that all their players, the, the big guys, you know, there's maybe a little less security than there's going to be just because, you know, it, it appears they've kind of stalled out with this core. And, and obviously with Matthew Kachuk, if they were ever to move him, yeah, you'd be talking about a sizable return. But, you know, it's certainly it's not a situation where I'd say he's definitely going to be traded, but, um, you know, his name's out there in small ways. And, and you know, I think that perhaps gauging the market on him and other players is, is what makes sense for that organization as they look to move forward because I, I don't think it's going to be a matter in Calgary of just bringing everyone back together and expecting something different. I do think you're you're going to see some change, you know, significant-ish change uh, with the Flames prior to October. Hmm. Uh, I'd love to walk down that road a little bit more, but I want to get in before we run out of time. Uh, Tarasenko and Eichel. Do you think both will be on different teams when we start a new season? I do. You know, I, I think in the case of, uh, of Eichel, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious. I mean, everyone's spoken openly enough about it. I mean, even did an interview in the last few days saying about how he dreamed of being a Bruin. Uh, you know, that doesn't make him unique. Lots of players grow up in a certain place or cheer for a team and sort of think one day down the road, but saying it into a camera... Uh, you know, the trolling is, is not common. Um, you know, I do think as they get through, you know, working out his recovery from a neck injury, that, that obviously complicates the deal uh, even more than it would be with, with how impactful of a player he is, how big his cap hit. But, I, I, you know, I, I would be surprised at this stage if he was a saber, you know, come the start of next season. You know, in Tarasenko's case, you know, both sides, I think, see a, a reason for a split. He, he wants out. Uh, it's not going to be maybe the easiest trade to pull off because he does have a sizable salary and he's had his own injury issues here the last couple of seasons. But, you know, I think that there's multiple ways to make that work. And you know, certainly Doug Armstrong with the Blues has, has been a GM for a long time. He's pulled off a lot of big moves. And, yeah. you know, it, it feels to me as though, you know, he's someone that will be on as well. He's never been skirt, uh, Doug Armstrong. Okay, so before I let you go, what's the one name that we should be – and I'm not saying you're saying it's going to be traded. I'm not trying to radio you here. But is there a name out there that you think people need to keep an eye on? Well, the, the one that's kind of been out there is, is John Gibson uh, a little bit. You know, I'm curious where he goes. You know, not been maybe a lot of – not making a lot of the lists that circulate this time of year. Right. Um, but, but with – you know, how impactful the goaltender is. I think we got kind of an interesting goaltending market shake in the summer. You know, he's someone I would keep an eye on. Maybe Anaheim moves. Um, you know, look, there's a lot. I, I think that this season, look, there's, there's rumors every every time we get to the draft period, there's, there's going to be rumors. But, you know, we haven't had a COVID event. We haven't had some ownership groups that, you know, have maybe the degree of actual financial issues tied to this and, and are looking to shed contracts. I just think it's been a a strange couple of years and, and with a flat salary cap and you mix it all in, we've got a pretty volatile market right now. And I think the trades are certainly not stopping at this keys move. And, and I think we could see some fireworks between now and you know the next two weeks or so. CJ, love it. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Well, Tim. There is uh, Christopher Johnson. Follow him on Twitter uh, because there's a, I mean, listen, Kachuk, Tarasenko, Landis Cog, Eichel, Tyler Bertuzzi, uh, rumored to the Leafs, Jakob Voracek, uh, Oliver ekman Larson. Like, it's just one after another, and he's right at the end there when he says all of these things are kind of coming together, and there could be some serious moves. So stay tuned to Tim and Friends and Sportsnet.ca. Uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Week is upon us. The show, or Shohei Otani, takes center stage tonight 
at the Home Run Derby. We'll head live to Denver and talk All-Star Week season's first half and maybe some Jays with Tim Kirchin of ESPN next as we roll on. Tim and Friends continues. Welcome back to Tim and Friends All-Star Week in Denver tonight, 8 Eastern time. It's the Home Run Derby. You can see it on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 1, and Sportsnet 5, 9 of the fan. Shohei Otani, the betting favorite in the field of eight. And speaking of Otani, he will make more history on Tuesday as the starting pitcher for the AL, also hitting leadoff in the lineup. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will hit second, Marcus Simeon sixth, and Teoscar Hernandez eighth. You can see the game also on Sportsnet tomorrow. My next guest is one of the best in baseball and has been covering it since 1979. Author, analyst, and fascinated by sack flies, joining us from the field in Denver, the site of the All-Star Game. It's Tim Kirchin. Welcome back to Tim and Friends, or I guess it's Tim, Tim, and Friends. How are things? I'm great. I'm at the All-Star Game. I'm not watching a game on TV. Yes. Nothing's better than this. Yes, I was going to say, like, it must feel good to be back there and be back to being on the field and feeling a little bit like uh, some normalcy has returned here. Right, but this is not a normal all-star game as you're going to get to here. This is a historic home run derby tonight, a historic game tomorrow, and it all revolves around Shohei Otani. He has clearly been the biggest story of the first half of the year. He will be the story of the home run derby and tomorrow when he makes history as the starting pitcher and the leadoff hitter. We've never seen anybody like this. This is the most incredible first half of the season of any player in Major League history, and he has this ability to rise to the moment, and I can't wait to see what he's going to do tonight and tomorrow night. We've developed this uh, this new analytic here on Tim and Friends, and it, it's it's chuckles per 60, and it's the amount that a professional athlete can make us chuckle with what he can do. Who does Shohei Otani amaze more? Who does he get more chuckles per 60 out of? The other hitters being able to pitch or the other pitchers being able to hit? I think he gets chuckles from both of them with the way that he runs. To me, that's even more amazing than him throwing 100 miles an hour and hitting a ball off the bat at 116 miles an hour is the way that he runs. He leads the league in triples. He's got 12 stolen bases. His speed to first base is 3.73. That's the best on the Angels, including Mike Trout. His Feet per second running speed is in the top 15 in the major leagues, which means I think everybody laughs when they watch him run because it's incredible what a graceful athlete he is, especially when he's on the move. So this, does it not feel like it has the ability to be something special today? I mean, I remember Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in the home run derby where everyone felt like it was the coming out party. And it's amazing that we feel like perhaps there needs to be a coming out party given what Otani's done. But does it feel like this could be something really special today? Yeah, I think we're all ready to the special point, but now the whole world is going to get to watch him swing the bat, and then tomorrow 
throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour, and that will make it special. But the thing about him is he's not just some dead pull hitter. He pulls the ball. He hits it to straightaway center. He takes that ball on the inside part of the plate, keeps his hands in, and rifles that ball to left center field. His spray chart, he is everywhere, and that's what he'll do tonight. He won't just hit him to one place. He'll hit him all over the field, and by the way tonight is over, those people who don't know who Shohei Tani is and they haven't been paying attention, they'll all know after tonight. Listen, your colleague Stephen A. Smith landed in it earlier today trying to describe why he isn't a bigger star in the United States of America. Do you think the star value or the star power of Shohei Otani is linked to where baseball is and could get to? Yes, I, I think it is. Baseball needs a shining star right now, and we have a bunch of them. Mike Trout's been that, Fernando Tatis, but this guy is different. And to me, the face of baseball is the guy, when he comes on television, you cannot turn the channel. When you want to watch one guy or one team you watch the angels first now and to me that's the definition of the face of baseball if i could watch one guy do something tonight it would be shohei otani that's how i see it i think that's how most baseball fans see it and that's the kind of hold he has over the game right now and it has been breathtaking to watch but do you think he can cross over Do, I'm sorry, do I think he can what? Cross over and transcend baseball? Uh, I think he can do whatever he wants because, again, other than Babe Ruth, who didn't even do what Shohei Otani's done, <clears throat> there's never been anybody like him in the history of the game. He has a chance to hit 60 homers this year. He has a chance to steal 30 bases, and he has a chance to strike out 200 batters. And that crosses over every single line that there is because you want to watch him do three different things on the field more than anyone in the game right now. Okay, one of the guys that we love uh, north of the border is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And he just signed with Jordan Brand, got a pretty big sponsorship deal uh, with Jordan Brand. If there is um, some secondary stars, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has got to be right there, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about the MVP of the American League, it's either Otani or Vlad Jr. And I, I was told this spring that he was embarrassed with the way that he played last year. And he was embarrassed that Acuna Jr. and Juan Soto and some others had passed him as the best young hitter in the game. So he lost all that weight, 42 pounds, and he made a commitment that I'm going to show everyone I'm as good a hitter as those guys and everyone else. And man, has he proven it. He has been so much fun to watch this year. And if it weren't for Otani, he might be the headliner here at the All-Star Game because he's Vlad's son and he's doing what he's doing because he's still got a chance outside to win the Triple Crown in the American League. Yeah, and that would be unbelievable to see what we're seeing in Otani and then have a Triple Crown winner as well. Unreal. The one, there is a, I mean, all this feels like all feel-good stories because we are at the All-Star Game, and that's what the Midsummer Classic is about. But as you mentioned, those young stars, I, I couldn't help but notice that Ronald Acuna Jr. was left out. Uh, how big a loss is this to the Braves and then to baseball? 
Well, it's a terrible loss for the Braves. I cannot see them making the playoffs. He led them in average, in home runs, in stolen bases, and he leads the major leagues in runs scored. So they're in big trouble without him. But the game took an even bigger hit because maybe outside of Otani and maybe Fernando Tatis Jr., Ronald Acuna Jr. is the guy you want to watch. I mean, he is a weapon in right field. He is devastating on the bases, and his power, especially to right center field, is ridiculous. The game took another huge hit when he was lost for the season, and he might not even back be back in full form at the beginning of next year. Another, another example of how difficult this game is to play, how easy it is to get hurt playing this game, and I am just heartbroken for the game more than anything that we won't get to see that guy for the second half of the season. I mentioned off the top that you uh, may have covered the game um, since 1979. What's your favorite all-star game memory? Like what, when you get to the Midsummer Classic, what pops into your mind as one or two of the memories that we'll, we'll, you'll always remember? Well, Ichiro hit a inside-the-park home run in the All-Star game. That's never happened in the history of the All-Star game. But I go all the way back to 1983 at Comiskey Park, and Fred Lynn hit a Grand Slam in the All-Star game. It's the first and only Grand Slam in the history of the All-Star game, and I will never forget him running around the bases, pumping his fist, because back in 83, it really mattered to the leagues whether you won the All-Star game or not. I don't think they really care anymore. It's an exhibition game. I get it. But the emotion was running high back then, and when he hit that Grand Slam in Chicago, that was one of many great memories of the All-Star games that I've covered. Although Pedro Martinez in in Boston in 1999, when he struck out five guys in the first two innings with Ted Williams watching from the dugout, Ted Williams told Pedro Martinez after that game, you're one of the greatest pitchers I've ever seen. And Pedro Martinez still calls that the highlight of his professional career when the greatest hitter of all time in his mind told him what a great pitcher he was. Uh, before we let you go, did, did you get to play in the uh, celebrity softball game this year by any chance, Mr. Kirchin? Uh No, I'm 64. <laughs> I need an artificial hip. I'm 5'4". I'm 140 pounds. They're not going to let me play anymore. But I broadcast the celebrity softball game yesterday with my son, Jeff. He did the play-by-play. I did the color. Nice. It was the worst game I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life, but it was a highlight of my career awesome. that I sat next to my 27-year-old son and did the celebrity softball game. It was so, so good for me and for my son. Look out, Eagles. Here come the Kirchens. Uh, father and son duos doing damage <laughs> in the broadcasting world. Uh, I know you had a ton of fun playing in the softball game, but... I got a feeling that uh, that was just as much fun doing it with your son. Nothing was better than that. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you joining us as always. Uh, enjoy tonight. Enjoy tomorrow. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Uh, there is Tim Kirchin, ESPN, from the field in Denver. Are you betting Jesse Rubinoff as our resident betting expert? I don't know how you've morphed into that, but are you betting against Otani? Like I was going to ask him for a prediction 
in the home run competition, but I don't think anyone's going against Otani. That might be a mistake. That might be a mistake. Yeah. The field is is packed. With, it is packed with dudes that can hit absolute bombs. Like I think I know a lot of people are. I think a lot of people are going to take Joey Gallo and and Pete Alonso. So, but Shohei, I mean, he's got the narrative. He's got the narrative, and that's why he's the favorite. I get. We t- I talked about it last last week. Twenty two home runs in Japan. Like this is amazing what he's doing, but his track record does not suggest that he's a home run hitter like no, this but so, what he's doing um repeatedly at the major league <laughs> level insane. right now is insanity and i will add to the joey gallo he's gonna hit tanks like yeah he is going to like go 500 we're going yeah, 500 we're, we're going to see yeah. especially with those there's a suggestion that maybe the balls are wound a little bit tighter mm-hmm. and that's why they fly a little bit further the baseballs uh fly a little bit further mm-hmm. in the home run competition but also Trey Mancini's a wonderful story. Unbelievable. So I think if people may be cheering for a good story, Trey Mancini out of Notre Dame is the guy to do it with. Uh, it might be worth looking into also if Shohei has participated in any home run derbies back in Japan. Because maybe... It just seems like he does really cool-ish for fun. Yeah. And yeah. this might be one of those things. It would definitely suit the storyline if he won tonight. Uh, fresh off of joining the Sens today is their senior VP of Player Development... Pierre Maguire joins me next to discuss his move, the role, and shaping the roster in Ottawa, a team that I think has taken a couple nice steps over the last couple years. We'll have that combo next. Pierre Maguire, Tim and Friends. Welcome back to Tim and Friends. If you've watched professional hockey and or the World Juniors over the, I don't know, the last couple of decades, you probably know the name Pierre Maguire from a double Dion to How's Your Breath Phil. He is now on the other side of the fence as the Sens brand new senior VP of player development. Here's Pierre Maguire. Hey, Pierre, longtime listener, first time caller. Appreciate you doing this with us. Tim, it's great to be with you, and us follically impaired guys have to stick together <laughs> yes. when it comes to television. Yeah, I call it the ball brethren. Uh, we are in the ball brethren together, and sometimes we are strong. Sometimes we are strong. <laughs> Very true. Uh, you, you've had it pretty good for a while. I mean, you've had a pretty good gig. Why, why now? Why the Sens? Well, first of all, I'm really appreciative of Eugene Melnick reaching out to me and the Ottawa Senators and the opportunity that they're presenting I also appreciate the time that Pierre Dorian spent with me over the last four or five days. It's been a phenomenal exercise in talking about hockey and talking about a lot of different things uh, concerning the hockey club in Ottawa. I'm really excited about the opportunity. When NBC didn't get the rights back, Tim, uh, in my situation, I talked to my wife about it and I said, Melanie, if I could go back uh, into hockey, I'd really like to try it, especially now with NBC not having the rights. Mm-hmm. And she gave me her blessing and the rest is history. I talked about two or three other teams, Tim, before Mr. Melnick actually approached me. And I was looking at maybe staying with one group in the United States. But obviously, the situation in Ottawa really was endearing to me. And I was really, really excited about the opportunity. I was hoping it was going to be presented. And it was. And I took it when it was presented. Listen, we've heard your name a couple of times in these circles. How long have you thought about getting back into the game in this capacity or something similar? Probably right after the Vancouver Olympics, Tim. It's a really good question. I remember doing the gold medal game with my good friend at the time and still to this day, Chris Cuthbert. It was just a magical moment when Aginla passed the puck to Crosby and he put by Ryan Miller 
And right around then, I started to think maybe I should go back. And then that next summer, NBC made me a 10-year offer to go to work for them in the United States. So I, I left TSN, obviously, and CTV and went down to the United States and worked in NBC. And I actually had one job offered to me, Tim, while I was at NBC. It was the second year of my deal at NBC with eight years or seven years left to go, I should say. It was my third year. And believe it or not, um, the general partner at the time at NBC said, if it's anything, two years or less in the contract, we'd ask you not to take it. And it was I was offered a two-year contract from an organization to go work there. And I had to turn it down because I gave them my word. And I haven't really looked at anything since, to be honest. Uh, I won't ask you the name of that team, but I am curious in the back of my mind, Mr. McGuire, and I'll just lock it back there and wonder. Um, this is a good young team on the rise. How do you get them to the next level? Well, I think Pierre Dorian Jr. has done a phenomenal job with his group, including Trent Mann, who's a chief scout. The amateur scouts of the Ottawa Center have done a phenomenal job. So I really like the young players that they have. I like the established players that they have. Uh, Goaltending is something that I, they have so much depth. Uh, obviously, everybody's curious as to what kind of additions we're going to make as a group. Uh, I think Pierre's got his finger on I'm talking about Pierre Darna really, really strongly. So I'm excited about the opportunities that are going to be presented. Uh, but I think we're going to have a very aggressive, fun, hard-loving team to watch. And, it, and more than anything else, I think, Tim, this is a group that will excite the fan base in Ottawa. And they'll be a ton of fun to watch over the next bunch of years. So forget the double Dion's. How will the double Pierre's work? Really well. Uh, so far, it's been great. Um, we talk all the time. Uh, I'm driving into Ottawa to meet him again tomorrow. We'll spend a good portion of the day tomorrow together, and then obviously on Wednesday as well. And then next week, we start full-on scouting meetings with the expansion draft coming up and then the, the entry draft. So spent a lot of time with Pierre, and I'm looking forward to it. So far, the level of discourse has been fantastic. When, when Eugene Melnick reaches out, is there any awkwardness between you and Pierre Dorian? Was that a conversation that you had early? Because um, in the past, when your name has come up, it's come up for GM jobs. It's come up for things around that, that, that kind of area. Was there a, a conversation to get rid of the awkwardness? Was there any awkwardness? No, I didn't feel like there was any awkwardness. That might be a question better served to Pierre than to me. But I felt really comfortable right from the start with Pierre. And uh, we talked, I think, the first day, probably 45 or 50 minutes. And then the next day was a lot longer. Uh, it was about an hour and a half. And then we had a four-hour meeting the other day that was seamless. He was fantastic to deal with. And I'm really, really excited about the relationship that's growing. I've known Pierre a long time. I knew his father, who was a legendary scout in the NHL for a long time uh, before he passed away. So I've known his family for a long time, and I've known him for a long time. Listen, uh, I, I, I know TV's a good gig, uh, <laughs> and, and I appreciate it. What, what did you learn most? Like, I, it's funny. We sit here, and, and I'll do tons of research for this show, and I feel like, you know, you try and learn something new every day. Like, what are the biggest takeaways that you'll take from your time in TV? The importance of communicating a message succinctly, the importance of doing the proper research, the importance of communicating with your teammates, the importance of communication from the headset to the people working as tape operators or directors or producers, uh, the level of communication that has to go on when you're doing television, especially high-level national television, is, is really important. So I learned a lot about communication. But I think the most important thing that you take away is the amount of preparation that you have to do to have a good broadcast. Because you can never predict 
how the game's going to go. So you got to have fountains and fountains of information. And if you don't, chances are you're probably not going to have a very good broadcast. You know, it's funny when you when you talk as much as you and I have talked uh, in our careers or over the last 20 years, you'll say some things. Do you feel like any of the things that you've said in your career now, like I know people were asking you about um, whether or not you appreciated what analytics bring to the table. Do, does any of that feel a little uh, like unfair? Do you feel like you have to address any of the things that you've said in the past moving from our side of the camera to that side of the camera? I don't think so. Um, I, I understand everybody's entitled to their own opinion, and I respect the analytics community opinion as much as I respect the scouting community's opinion. So I, I try to play that down the middle. You know, the one thing is I'd say analytics is a tool, but it shouldn't be the only tool. Just like scouting is a tool, it shouldn't be the only tool. Um, I think it's important, though, when you're going to be a scout or you're going to be a coach or you're going to be in management, I think it's really, really important that you formulate strong opinion. And if you don't formulate strong opinion, chances are you're not going to be particularly good at your job. So I respect everybody's opinion, uh, and hopefully people respect my opinion. You've been around long enough to hear the whispers and know that the whispers aren't always true, but some of those whispers have suggested that Eugene Melnick may be tough to work with. What's your experience been so far working with Eugene Melnick? Excellent. It's been fantastic. I respect the fact that he's tough. I respect the fact that he's hard-nosed. I want our team to be part of that. Um, uh, you know, the, all the intercourse, the display and the, the discussion I've had with Eugene has been phenomenal, you know, and, and so I'm really appreciative of the opportunity that he's presented to me. I know how passionate he is about the Ottawa Senators. I know how much he wants to win. Um, it's always, I think, a big relief when you're a hockey person that your owner is as passionate and as committed as he is to the Ottawa Senators and to the community. So I'm forever grateful for this opportunity. And I'm going to try to pay it off in spades for him and for Pierre Dorio. All right. So you're you're now senior uh, vice president player development. What are the first couple steps uh, beyond the communication that you've already had with Pierre Dorian and Eugene Melnick? Well, you know, today I was in touch with our American Hockey League coaching staff led by Troy Mann, who just signed a two-year extension. Ben Sexton, David Bell, Justin Peters. I had a great talk with Justin Peters today. And Jeremy Benoit, our strength and conditioning coach at the American Hockey League level. Also had a great discussion with DJ Smith. I tried to reach Davis Payne. I think he's out fishing, so I couldn't get a hold of him. Nice. I did talk to Jack Burke and or Jack Capuano, and I couldn't get in touch with Zach Burke, but I will try. But one of the most interesting conversations I had today was with Trent Mann, our unbelievable uh, director of amateur scouting, and and I really appreciated that conversation. I come from a strong scouting background. I appreciate what all the scouts do around the National Hockey League, not just in Ottawa. And uh, I love my conversation with Trent today. So I did a lot of that today, and I did a lot of radio shows today, Tim, and a lot of TV shows today, too. Well, we'll let, we'll let you get off this one. We appreciate the time. And like I said, a couple years now, I really like the steps that this, team's have take, this team has taken under DJ Smith, and it'll be really interesting to see their growth over the next couple of years, and I know that everyone over there is looking forward to it as well. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. I really appreciate those great witches, and we're all excited about what the future holds for the Ottawa Senators. And you know what the coolest thing is now, Tim? What's that? I get to have a follically impaired person that I can talk to <laughs> on television from time to time. So thank you, Tim. There, there are a few of us, Pierre. There are a few of us. Maybe we'll get Larry David in on the action and we'll have the, the bald <laughs> brethren complete. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. 
You got it, Tim, anytime. There is uh, Pierre Maguire, who is the new senior VP player development with the Ottawa Senators. Uh, We'll see how that works moving forward with Pierre Dorian and this young group that is expected to take those next steps. I believe Eugene Melnick talked about championship contention, and this is the window. Time for one last break. We'll get to our Monday tip of the cap and some Conor McGregor talk in last call after this on Tim and Friends. Am I follically challenged? Yeah, I guess I am. Welcome back. Our tip of the cap on this Monday goes out to a pair of Canadians. First, Kia Nurse, who finished with a career-high seven three-pointers as her Phoenix Mercury fell to the Seattle Storm by seven on Sunday. Nurse finished with 28 points and now holds seven of the top ten scoring games by a Canadian in WNBA history. And a shout-out to Tyler Black, who was the first Canadian chosen in the 2021 Major League Draft on Sunday. Black from Stouffville, Ontario, was selected 33rd overall by the Milwaukee Brewers in the competitive balance round, otherwise known as the first round. And if you recognize the name, that is, in fact, Rod Black of TSN's son, Tyler. So shout-out to the Black family. On a first-round pick in Major League Baseball. It's funny. I talked to him. Last time I talked to him was a couple years ago because of this whole, I don't know, global pandemic Mm. thing. But we were at uh, Scotiabank Arena, and I said, hey, I heard your son play some baseball. He's a mutual friend. He's like, yeah, he's going to Wright State. Lo and behold, this kid turns into a first-round pick. Um, We were talking about Shohei Otani earlier, and we have a great team here at Tim and Friends. Mm -hmm. We found footage of the 2016 Nippon Home Run Derby. You guys can take to the computer whenever you like. And it's just Shohei hitting just... Putting on a Shohei? Bombs. So, yeah. I mean, I'll probably bet him now. I watched the tape. I watched the tape. We did the research. Wanna, we did the work now. So I'll bet him. I want to know who the dudes in the small box are watching Shohei hitting home runs just and reacting. just reacting yeah. to yeah. it. That, cool. that interests me more yeah. than actual <laughs> Shohei... Just smashing home runs from the left side of the plate. All right, we'll put the team to work and try to figure that oh one out. Oh, my God, that last one straight yeah. away so, center field. Yeah, so he uh, he knows what he's doing. He's been there before with the bright lights of the home run derby. So I think we could have like an alternate challenge of just regular dudes reacting to things. Love it. Love it. It's uh, like the Steve Dangle channel. Love it. Uh, you mentioned Rob Black's son mm-hmm. getting drafted to into the majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's continue with more MLB draft. Blue Jays drafting Gunnar Hoglund with their first round pick, a pitcher out of Had Ole to be a Miss. Pitcher. If your name's Gunnar, you can't be anything but a pitcher, right? He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's got to be an ace now. He's got to be an ace. <laughs> well, he's got to be a pitcher. Gunnar. Um, check out the reaction from the Jays' fifth round pick, Irv Carter, a okay. high school pitcher out of Florida who was with family and friends when it was announced that the Jays had drafted him. The Toronto Blue Jays select Irv Carter. <laughs> He'll be the best Carter in Jay's history now. 
<laughs> yeah, no pressure, kid. How about just enjoy the moment? That's why we play sports. That's why we have kids in sports. Like, that is a wonderful moment, and it's very cool drafts, to see that. Yeah, drafts are the best. Uh, okay, let's move on to UFC. Dustin Poirier beat Conor McGregor for the second time in six months after McGregor broke his ankle. It was nasty in the closing seconds of the first round. At Saturday's UFC 264, the fight was stopped by doctors. When McGregor obviously couldn't continue. McGregor is now one and three in the cage since 2016. So would you still pay to watch Conor McGregor fight again? Because you know they're going to get a fourth one here. Aren't, aren't the, listen, he was at one point one of, if not the best, but it's the spectacle that you're paying for when it comes to Conor McGregor. And I believe that he will still provide that spectacle. You just have to wonder after going in and having these setbacks, whether he as one of the highest paid athletes in the world wants to keep getting back totally. into the ring. And that to me is a big question moving forward for a guy who has so many opportunities and so many things going for him. Does he still want to be this guy? One in three since 2016. Now he's got a rod in his leg. He's got to deal with. So right. good luck to, to Connor. Uh, as we showed you earlier, the Tampa Bay Lightning very way, much. I don't know if anyone knows. It's not easy to fight no yeah okay <laughs> we want to step into the octagon to yeah. begin with uh, uh they're, they're having fun they're having fun enjoying their second straight stanley cup victory today was the parade on land and water kucherov having fun while he's taking center stage with the celebrations some teammates also got in on the fun today it's like hockey's version of woodstock <laughs> This kind of plays to Pat Maroon, doesn't it? Oh, big time. It does. This, this is, is a normal Saturday play. night for Patty. Look out, here he comes. <laughs> and he's putting on a bit of a show. We love you guys. Let's go. We're back to back. Let's go. The wildest party the National Hockey League perhaps has ever seen for a Stanley Cup champion. We swim along in the rain. Okay, so those celebrations probably explain what I'm about to show you. Okay. It appears as though the Stanley Cup has been dented. What do you, what do you mean appears as though? That thing is straight jacked. Like, what are you... Half of the cup, for those listening on the radio, it looks like the bowl of the cup is now a D. Like, there is a straight hard line across the bottom of the bowl. They have jacked up like, the cup. There's been some stuff that's happened to the cup in the past. So do you have a problem? Like, they're going to fix no, it. They'll fix no, the cup. They've fixed it They'll a fix thousand times before. It's been to places. It's seen things that we would never accept right. in 2021, Jesse, because it would be completely and utterly despicable. 100%. But things like this happen when grown men get as intoxicated as those grown men are. They'll fix it. It's all good. All right, that does it for us. Home Run Derby coming up 8 Eastern time on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Thank you very much for watching. Have a great night, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. They smash that thing. They bring it to certain sorts of clubs and stuff. Like